This is Truth Encounter, and as we continue our study of the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and following. He tells us how the new life we received in Christ changes our mouth, our anger, and our hands. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson. Chuck was a gregarious, powerful business guy. In fact, he was one of these guys, you know, everybody in his church family immediately recognized. I mean, from the time he walked in the door of the church, he was a leader. You know, one of those guys, when this guy went to the rotary, they made him president of the rotary. When he went into his job, he just rose right up. And he was a developer. Chuck was a recognized leader in his church, became an elder in his church, and uh, everybody just loved him. Outgoing, able to communicate, and one afternoon he went over to visit Martha Sue and his church family. Martha Sue was an 82-year-old widow, and she was living on uh, the investments that her husband had wisely prepared for and provided pretty good for Martha Sue, and it wasn't long after he drank some really good tea and was just sharing about some normal everyday things like we do as Texans, some small talk, because you don't want to not be relational. You want to just get in with somebody. And Chuck did that beautifully. And he said, Martha Sue, he said, you know, I've got a great investment for you. I'm going to put in a brand new mall. And it's going to be in a part of the city that the city's moving out exactly where my land is. And if you invest a thousand dollars, in two years, I'll double the money. It'll be 2000 You know, and I want to give you this opportunity, Martha Sue, I know that, you know, you're living on a fixed income, but I think maybe this would be a great way for you to be able to multiply your resources. Well, Martha Sue, you know, Chuck's an elder in her church, a fellow believer, and man, she wrote out a check, not for $1,000, but she wrote out a check for $3,000. And two years went by. And suddenly, Martha Sue got the local paper, and there, right in the front row, there's a big court case. Chuck is being tried and possibly going to prison. And what he had done is he had taken people's money, like Martha Sue, because he had done this throughout the church family. And he got $3,000 here and $3,000 here, and he got all these people investing. And what he did was that instead of... You know, they cleared some ground and they put some foundations down, but he was building several other strip malls and other parts of the city and other part of the area. And he took the money that Martha Sue invested for the strip mall near her and he used the money to cover the, the bills that were due in this other land. Now, all of you that are into building houses and development, a lot of you are into that, know that that's against the... But Chuck got a really good expensive lawyer... And when some of the men in the church went to talk to Chuck, he said, listen, you know, it's just business. It's the way things are. It's just the way it is. You know, when you make investments, you lose some, you win some, and you lose some. And he never goes to Martha Sue and looks her in the eye and says, I'm sorry. You know, I deceived you, and I lied. Chuck, as an elder in the church, lied, and he stole. And believing businessmen and women across The United States, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, do that almost every single month. In fact, all of you that are in business have probably could tell you a story. In fact, I can tell you one story after another just like Chuck's story. You all get angry about that. In fact, if you have any concern for Martha Sue, you're going to be really concerned about her. But I want you to think about what does that do as we're trying to communicate 
to unbelieving people throughout that area, what does what Chuck did do to the reputation of Jesus Christ? What did it cause unbelievers to say? What did it cause unbelievers to do as far as wanting to learn about the good news of Jesus? I want you to think really hard about that because that's what Paul wants us to think about today. He wants us to think about when we lie, when we steal, what does it say about our Savior? And what did it say about the power of the Savior in our life? Let me give you another example. Susan uh, is, a, is a housewife. That She's a young housewife. She's been married about 10 years. She has about three kids. She's a faithful Sunday school teacher. She really labored. But her husband doesn't know the Lord. Her husband, Jack, doesn't really know the Lord. And Susan really wants to reach him. But Jack is, is a construction worker, and he doesn't have the finer points of life in some ways. He's kind of from a rough background, and so he doesn't really get dressed up very much. And Susan's always on him about the way that he dresses. He just loves those Levi jeans, and that's what he's going to wear. And he comes in from working all day long, and he forgets to take off his muddy boots. And he tromps through the house at times with his muddy boots, which is hardly not a good thing to do. But Susan has told him this over and over again, and she a lot of times says it pretty loud. She gets angrier and angrier and angrier. But now she's over being angry. I mean, this has been 10 years. The money boots have been multiplied a thousand times, and so she's not really angry anymore. She just abides that household. She just abides her husband. What does the Holy Spirit want to do with Susan's anger? You say, no, she's not angry. She just You told me she didn't have any feelings. Yeah, she's angry. Because this is what anger does. You see, every single day, you all are going to get angry. In fact, in the passage today, we're going to look at it in just a minute. The Apostle Paul uses a construction in Greek that says, be angry. He actually gives a command. He's not condoning anger, but he, what he's recognizing is the fact that as you live and as we live together, one of the natural responses that every single one of you will have throughout today is if I do something you don't want me to do, if I don't meet your expectations, you're going to get angry. That's a normal response. And some of you haven't learned how to be angry. You know, you think this Christian life, you, everything is just smooth and everything's just happy-go-lucky. And, and, you're, and what happens is you end up lying because you don't ever express anything. But the sun does go down upon your ticked-offness. The sun does go down upon your rejection. As a wife, you say, I'm going to ice you, hubby. I'm not going to talk to you for the next three days. Or I'm not going to be close to you. The kids won't really know, but I'm not going to really be close to you. And I could reverse it and have the husband doing the same thing. That's anger. It's one of the most powerful forces in your personality, and it becomes bitterness if you don't deal with it. Chuck lied, and he stole What does it do to the reputation of Jesus? And what does it do to the power of Jesus in reaching out to a community? What about our anger? The Apostle Paul wants to talk to us today about liars, abusers, which is what we do when we let anger sit in our soul. We end up abusing emotionally. We end up abusing physically at times. And he wants to talk to us about thieves. I want to talk today about us. Liars, abusers, and thieves. That's what we used to be. But you know what? When Jesus came into our life, he received Christ 
presence to live inside of you. The question Paul raises today, what difference does it make for liars, abusers, and thieves to have Jesus come to live in their life? Let's look what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. And the very first thing Paul launches into, it's a very practical section as you look at this in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 25, the Apostle Paul's been talking to us about our former life without Jesus. And some of you remember that really well. Some of you are like me. You were a little kid when you received Jesus. But all of us know in this room what it's like to not have Jesus controlling our life. And Paul's very honest about the hatred and the bitterness. He's very honest about the immorality. He's very honest about the pride and the greed. All of those things. Now, what he gets to when he gets to verse 25, he gets down to the real nitty-gritty of what where we're living day by day. And so I asked Paul the question, okay, Paul, if Jesus has come to live inside my life, if Jesus dwells inside of me, what does it look like? What it should it look like the way that I live Monday? What does it look like the way I live through Saturday? What does it look like in my marriage? What does it look like in my business? What does it look like in my relationship with friends? What does it look like when I play ball? So let's look what he says. Look what he says. He says, therefore, each of you, that's all of us, And Paul's very individual. So I'm talking to me. I'm talking to Dave Wordson today. I'm talking to you. He says, each of us, remember, we're connected. We're all in this together. That's one of the major things we're understanding from the book of Ephesians. We are one family, one body, one bride of Christ. We are all connected. My reputation is totally related to your reputation. It's totally connected to the reputation of Jesus. That's what I want you to catch a glimpse of. I want you to really feel that deeply, and I want to feel it. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, each of us must put off, and he uses the same idea. Remember I talked to you last week about taking off your old life, just like taking off an old, smelly, dirty coat, and you put it aside. And in fact, Paul actually says, having laid aside. And the picture is, Paul wants to remind you, when you receive Jesus as your Savior from your positional standing in the heavens, in Jesus which is your true eternal standing, God sees you in the Son of God and God's looking at past, present, and future and He sees you standing clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's why you're saved. And that's your true identity. That's what justification means. It means the moment you receive Christ, God is able to look all the way to the future and He sees you standing in His Son. He sees you transformed by His Son. He sees your true eternal identity. And that's why he says, having put off this old way of life. And then he tells us specifically, okay, what does it look like? He says, having put off, we specifically put off falsehood. And instead, we speak truthfully with our neighbor, to his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. So the very first thing the Apostle Paul talks to us about is our truth-telling. And there's a big contrast here. When we're unbelievers, we tell lies. We live by the lie. We deceive. We do it in business. We do it in our family. We do it with our friends. We have peer groups in high school that, that the whole thing's built on slander and gossip and telling deceitful things about other people, trying to hurt them. That's the way from all different walks of life. Business. And I'm trying to give you a feel for that. Where have you been exposed to the lie? In the old way of life, lying is part of the way it is. In fact, the Bible teaches that Satan's the father of that. Satan started out, his very first thing in the Bible is he lied. He told Eve, has God really said you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? Implying God's a Scrooge, doesn't really want you to have a good time, doesn't have your best interest at heart. And if you follow me, I'm going to make you eternal. I'm going to make you God. I'll make you divine. He lied. God told him they would die. And we have been dying ever since. He lied. 
The Bible is really strong. I want to share with you, this is, is very important. A lot of sin begins with lies. In fact, almost all sin begins with a lie. Chuck lied. And then he stole. He deceived. And the way that I told this story is even when he was confronted, he said, that's just the way business is. He's not facing the truth. And I've been with people that are like that. That's the old way of life. When we come over here, we tell the truth. We live the truth. And all those great stories, as Americans, you've been raising the stories of Abraham Lincoln, like borrowing a, just a library book, and he walks through the snow and the ice and everything else because he promised the librarian he would take the, the storybook back. There's all those kind of stories. Truth-telling is really important in our country. Well, where did that come from? Because the old Puritans really believed what I was telling you about. The old Puritans that landed in Massachusetts, this stuff was really important to them. Man, in our old way of life, you built the whole thing on lies. You built the whole thing on bribery. You built the whole thing on deceitfulness. But we're Jesus' people. We're Jesus' new people. And over here, we tell the truth. And Paul gives us a really solid reason why we need to tell the truth. Because we are united. Because Paul's specifically talking about telling the truth. And when he uses the word neighbor in this context, the word literally means someone that's close to you. It's a person sitting next to you today. They're your neighbor. It's a Greek word that means the person close by. But in this context, because Paul's specifically been talking about the way that we as believers relate together... It begins with us telling the truth to one another. And he gives us a strong reason why we should tell the truth to one another, because we are members of one another. There's an old preacher that Christensen is one of the earliest church fathers, one of the great pastor teachers. His writings are still worth reading today. And Christensen uses the illustration that preachers have been using ever since he shared it. Can you imagine your eye lying to your foot? In other words, he didn't use the example of a car, but the idea is like, let's suppose you're driving your car. And suddenly my eyes say, David, there's a big 18-wheeler in front of you. Wham! I slam on the brakes. That's great for the body, isn't it? I throw my head into the windshield. It's ludicrous for the eye to lie to the feet and to the hands. That's Paul's point. We belong together. We are united. It doesn't make any sense for us to lie. Now, just think of the corollary of that. If I lie to you, then I'm denying my unity with you. I'm denying my closeness to you. So, one of the very first things the Apostle Paul talks to us about, he says, in business, we need to put off falsehood and put on truth. In our family life, we need to put off falsehood and put on truth. He's saying that we need to walk out of Satan's territory, which is all built upon lying and all built on definitions of the verb is and what I did say and what I didn't say. And we use a whole battery of lawyers to try to figure out when deep in your soul, every single one of you know, you know when you're telling the truth, when you're speaking in touch with the reality, which is what truth is. Truth is what's real. Truth is what's really there. It's not pretending. Now, what do we need to do about this? If you in business have lied to somebody, say, as, I, as I told you the story of Chuck, you said, man, I can remember doing that. If you're a businessman or woman today, what I would pray is that this week you would go to that person. The Chucks of the world need to go to the Martha Sue's of the world and sit down and drink tea again. And then they need to say, I lied to you and I want you to forgive me. And I deceived you, and I stole. 
And I want to share with you that I did great harm to our Lord and Savior, but I did harm to you. And I'm going to work hard to pay back your $3,000. In fact, I have a Christian businessman friend that had a Chuck in his life, and they were serving together on boards of Christian organization. And this Chuck did that repeatedly. And my friend's Chuck never would go to the Martha Seuss. And he never would admit that he did anything wrong. But my friend was so committed to the honor of Jesus and to the reputation of Jesus that with some of his other friends, he found out all the Martha Seuss. And he went to all of them. And as a Christian businessman with some of his other Christian men and women in business together that honored Jesus, they actually went and covered Chuck's mishap to the best they could do. You know why? Because they loved their Savior. And I want to challenge you this week, if you can think of where you lied in business, you deceived in business, maybe you cheated on your income tax. My older brother Don tells this story. When he was a little kid, he went to New York. And when we were reminiscing about being raised by my dad, my brother tells the story. My brother went to New York, and my dad was having meetings there, and my dad let my brother just run all over New York with one of his friends. And they went to the subway, and they found out that they were short enough they could just duck through all the subway things. In other words, you know those turnstiles? My brother was little, and his friend was little. They just ducked through all of it. So on the way home that night, after my dad spoke... He overheard my brother telling his friend about how, man, how cool it was. They rode the subway all day in New York and never paid a dime. My dad was real quiet. When they got home, he said, Don, I need to talk to you. And up in his room, my dad said, you know, son, you lied and you stole. And what do you think about that? And my brother, I've seen my brother remembering it years later. It's like a ton of bricks. He remembers how he felt. My dad actually made my brother figure out every ride he was on to the best of his ability. They figured out how much it costs. He made my brother write a letter to the New York Port Authority. And he made him admit that he deceived and he stole and tell him the truth. Was that important? Yeah. All of you can tell stories like that. What's going to reach our area for Jesus? This is what's going to reach it. We put off falsehood and we tell the truth. And when I share, you know, you tell the truth, it's hard in relationships. Your marriages, let me, we're going to talk about anger just a minute, which really relates to our marriage. One of the things that's wrong in some of your marriages, that in my marriage at times, is we don't tell the truth. Now remember the Apostle Paul told us to tell the truth in love. But a lot of us deceive. You know, our wife asks us, well, where were you? And we lie. Because we're afraid of the anger we're going to get. Anybody ever done that? Or we've stretched a little bit. Well, that destroys relationship. Automatically, you're starting to treat each other. We don't belong together anymore. We're individual. As a man, I fight that. A lot of you men are going to fight that. And so the Apostle Paul comes to me to David and says, David, knowing Jesus means that you become a person that's in touch with reality and you tell the truth. And you recognize your unity with your fellow brothers and sisters. You recognize your unity with your wife, with your kids. And you become a truth teller. You speak reality. So the Apostle Paul is going to have the very nitty gritty in saying, put off falsehood and put on truth. And I would challenge you. Some of you this week really need to go to someone 
Maybe it's even your wife or your husband that you've lied to. And you need to say, I'm sorry, I deceived you. And I, I gave you a falsehood and it was wrong. And I want you to forgive me. I want to speak the truth. It's a very simple thing, but it will be profound. The Apostle Paul gets down where we live. And this is going to be one of the most powerful things that would happen. In the construction industry, I've often used an example. When I worked construction and we were getting ready for a big cement concrete pour, not cement pour, but a concrete pour, it was standard procedure when my superintendent called the ready, the mix company, it was standard procedures to say the trucks were on the way. In fact, it was almost like a standard deal was they're getting ready. It was like shop talk. If you work construction and you're in a ready mix company, when somebody calls you, if the trucks aren't on the way yet, you say they are not on the way. And I will try to have them on, the, on, and you give exactly the time. This is real important. That's what it means to be a believer. And every one of you can have a tremendous influence for Jesus this week by the simple thing of being a man or woman of truth. And we've got to turn this around because unbelieving business people that I talk to, they don't want to do business with born-again believers. The word born-again had become, I can't trust them. They don't pay their bills. They lie. And that's from the evil one. One of the most powerful things we can do is to leave this room today and put off, recognize that we have now become children of truth. The next thing Paul talks about is getting down into the same every day where we live. In your anger, do not sin. You can translate it, if you're angry. The Greek literally reads, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Once again, the Apostle Paul talks about what we do with our emotions. He quotes from Psalm 4, King David was a very passionate man that wrote Psalm 4. The Hebrews have a very powerful way to talk about anger. In fact, they say, tremble and don't sin. You know, when someone gets angry, have you ever seen someone so angry that they tremble and their nose flushes up? Those are the words that are used in Hebrew for anger. It's when you tremble, you're so furious and you, your nose flares up. So those are two Hebrew words that are used. Trembling and the flare of the nose are two of the powerful words that are used for anger. I want you to understand something that the Bible talks about God being angry. The Apostle Paul talked earlier that God is angry. He's upset with evil. He's upset with wickedness. You should have got angry. When I told you the story of Chuck, did anybody, did anybody get angry? What do you want to do to Chuck? <laughs> That's legitimate. If, if Martha Sue is your aunt, or if she's your mom, or she's your grandmother, you should be ticked. That's legitimate, okay? That's one of the things that's men. I want to talk to you men. A lot of you men have the idea, and I can have this. I've been taught almost all my life. Being a Christian means you don't ever feel anything. You react to everything. Mary can say, react! Because I've been trained almost completely from that time I was a little kid. Because my mom was real explosive. I also went to a high school where the two women that ran the place were angry continually. When we did choir, they would come up, they would walk up, we'd be singing, and a lady would come up, you kids are the worst kids imaginable! I can't believe you sound like that! Come over here, Bill Looney! You think you're a quarterback of the football team? Wham! And she'd cuff him. Well, when you're raised with that kind of stuff, you know, you learn this isn't such a great way to react. So, 
You know, you ask Mary, a woman can just speak in a certain tone of voice, and I'm like this. So my response is, anger is out of it. Some of you can't take any discussion. As soon as someone disagrees with you, you think it's anger. So we have to walk around. We never can really tell you the truth, going back to the first thing. Because as soon as we disagree with you, you bristle. You gotta learn not to do that. You wanna get close to people, you gotta be able to tell the truth, you gotta realize. When two New Yorkers are at a dinner table, and it sounds like they're trying to kill each other, they're not. Now sometimes they are, if it's the mafia. But that's a cultural thing, like in our own family, culture is very much related to this. I was raised back on the East Coast. A common dinner table conversation is intense, to say the least. Man, you disagree. That was the lifeblood of living, to disagree. My brother said something, I disagreed. That's how we learned. We fought back and forth. But you know what? A lot of times when the discussion was over, you you go out and you hug each other. It's not a personal deal. So sometimes intensity, and I want to share with you, sometimes there is anger. Sometimes there's real hatred. But one of the things you need to learn is as you go through a day, you should just put it into your coffers. You're going to get ticked. Ladies, your husband's going to tick you off. And husbands, your wife's going to tick you off. Join the human race. God in heaven gets angry at sin. We get angry at the wrong things. If you're a mom or a father and your kids, like when my kids sin, it ticks me. When they're goofing off and doing the wrong thing. As a daddy, and I want to talk to you men, as a daddy, your kids should know daddy is going to be upset. And he's going to get on you because he loves you. He doesn't sit there like Casper Milk Toast. So I want to challenge you. Anger is in itself is not sinful. When Jesus turned the money chambers over, like I've often taught you, he wasn't going, it would be nice if you Jewish tax people doing the shekel thing, it would be nice if you'd please leave. And I really would appreciate it. It would mean a lot to me if you would leave. It's not what he did. In fact, I'm being more emotional than, you know, Jesus let him have it. He took a whip and started going. And we need some men that I'll stand up and get angry at things that are really wrong. Martin Luther got really angry at the church when they lost justification by faith. He nailed theses on the door and the world changed. We're here today because he made Romans clear again. He got angry at the right thing. There's things you should get angry. Wilberforce in England got angry at slavery and the English Empire, the British Empire outlawed slavery by a vote in Parliament a hundred years before we fought the war between the states. Because a believer like you got angry. He saw the slaves in the hold and he saw the numbers of of African Americans that were dying and the British controlled the world at the time and he argued in, in Parliament just year after year after year on a slow, steady attack. And a hundred years before we fought the Civil War, the British, in Parliament, against what they thought were their economic interests, voted against slavery. Now, law, that's what believers can do when they get angry at the right thing. And it takes men and women to do that. But I want to share with you, that's not usually what we're angry about. 
I'm going to be angry when people don't meet my expectations, my plans for them, what I want to get out of them. And you need to realize it's a normal part of life. But you know what? When you go to bed and you're ticked, the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to put our anger to bed. And what the Lord wants us to do is he wants us to recognize that he's the judge of the universe. I could be wrong. And he wants us to let go of it. Some of you as husbands and wives say, it'll feel better in the morning. No, it will not. What happens in the morning is your emotions have buried it. And you forget it. And it is, on the outside, better in the morning. But you're becoming hardened. And you're becoming bitter. And you're becoming cold. And you're moving away from one another. Because you're not telling the truth anymore to each other. Because anger is blocking it. And you're too insecure. When people can't fight fair, it's because they're not secure. Everything becomes personal. And one of the most powerful things you can do in your marriage is to learn to fight and to learn at the end of the day to say we disagree and we're going to have to look to our Savior in the coming days to find out what the answer is. I'm not so Lord Almighty that I know everything that's right. A wife needs to say to her husband, you know, I totally disagree with you. And we disagree about this. And I don't know what the answer is. And husband needs to say, honey, I don't know what the answer is either. But Jesus knows what the answer is. But before we go to bed tonight, let's hug. And let's ask the Lord Jesus to guide us. And we're arguing over issues. Let's not argue over our identity and over our personality. Are you listening to me? Because some of you are throwing plates at each other. And some of you are cussing each other. And some of you say dirty things to one another. And one of the hardest things you can say is, I'm out of here. Wives, when you say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to the divorce court. You just kicked him below the belt. It's not respectful. It's from hell. It'll destroy your marriage. You made a covenant. Husbands, when your wife is scared of you, Because you haven't learned how to control that trembling. And you might hurt her. You hurt her emotionally. You're hidden below the belt. It's illegit. What do we need to do about it? We need to repent. We need to say, this is not the way it's going to go. We need to be in our community groups and be really honest and say, man, I'm really wrestling with this. How do we really have victory over it? You wrestle in Jesus. You know why you get so furious? It's because you're so threatened. You're so insecure. And what I want to share with you today, there's no reason for any of you that know Jesus to be insecure today. You are loved by the Savior. You are cherished by the Savior. You have become a new person in the Savior. Your earthly daddy might have beat you to smithereens. Your heavenly daddy is going to hug you forever. Your earthly mom might have divorced and left you and abandoned you and you're angry about it. Let the precious love of the precious Lord Jesus... He's never going to leave. You don't have to be scared anymore. Please let the Holy Spirit read Ephesians 1 through 3 over and over again and let the Holy Spirit say, I am loved by my parents. I am loved by my daddy in heaven. And he's not leaving me. And I don't have to be insecure anymore. And I can open myself up. And I can let people get close to me. And I don't have to be so threatened. I don't have to be so insecure. And I would challenge some of you men that really wrestle with anger, get two or three buddies that will pray, meet you every single week and pray for you and pray with you and call them when you're ticked. Because we've got to stop. It's not going to work, brothers and sisters, 
if we keep filling the Ellis County Waxahachie Divorce Court with couples, it's not going to work. It's wrong. It's just not going to work. A guy can forgive and he puts broken lives back together again. I want you to know you are in a church of acceptance and grace. But I'm going to share with you that you're in a church family. When you make a promise, Jesus wants you to keep it. It's because I love you. Mary and I had to learn how to fight. We had to learn to be angry and not let the sun go down upon our wrath. We are totally different personalities. We are totally maladjusted to one another. I'm from New York. Mary's from Nebraska. She's an administrator. I'm a visionary. I'm the big picture. She's the tails. Our personalities don't mesh at all. But God had an eternally planned that I would have a precious life partner that would completely, complete me, not mirror me. And we had to learn how for Nebraskans and New Yorkers to get along and for mouthy, loud Easterners to learn to live with quiet Nebraskans. And I want to share with you, that's the fun of it. As I look back upon my life, that's what's really fun. It's the, the big thrill of my life is that I have real quiet Montanan guys that love me to death and I'm their brother. That's a miracle. A New Yorker that a Montanan fly fisherman really loves because he's taught him to be quiet when he's fishing. And all I covet that for your marriage is I covet it for your families. Finally, Paul says, if you stole, look at the transformation. He says, if you stole, look what he says about stealing. He says, he who has been stealing. I love it. You can just tell the kind of congregation Paul's talking about. He's so honest. He said, you guys were Ephesians. You used to steal. You shoplifted. You ripped people off in business. He says, those of you that are stealing, look what he says instead. He who has been stealing on them no longer steal. He puts off stealing, but instead he works and does something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. I just love that. What a transformation. Here's a guy. What does a thief do? The guys that are my friends that steal, one of the things that blows my mind is they're usually incredibly gifted because you've got to be really good to steal well. They make plans. They, they're usually great organizers. They usually have a whole team of people that work with them on stealing. And what often blows my mind is, if this guy or this woman would ever put the effort into honest, normal work that they put into stealing, it would be incredible what they can do. It just doesn't make any sense. But what does a thief do? A thief does everything they can to get out of good, honest, hard work. What the Apostle Paul is saying is saying something really important. He says, if you used to steal, now what you do is you work with your hands. And I want to close with this. It's total transformation. The Lord you just want to teach every one of us, it's really good to do things with your hands. It's good to work. It's good to dig ditches. It's good to drive bulldozers. It's good to serve hamburgers at Whataburger. It's holy to do that if you're not serving bad food. One of the things I want to get across that Jesus teaches us is that we realize that work is part of God's gift to us. And we're humble We'll do anything that needs to be done. We'll work with our hands. And I want you to see it's a total difference. The thief steals for himself to get out of work. Often they make more work, but they're usually stealing because then they don't have to work. And they can make a lot more money stealing than they can by working. But a believer instead works with their hands. But notice, not just to meet their own needs anymore. Now they work so they can give. That's transformation.
What I pray that will come out of this message is we go on and teach the book of Ephesians. Say, Dave, what should happen this week? Some of you have stolen. Some of you are shoplifters. And you need to go to the store, to the Walmart, or wherever you stole, and you need to figure out and say, I did blah, 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 blah. And if you don't have the money right away, you need to say, I'm going to pay it off, or I'll face whatever you want to do. Some of you need to go to your husband today. Some of you wives need to go to your husband today and say, Honey, I've been really angry with you. And I admit it. I've been icing you. I've been keeping you away. And I want you to forgive me. And I want us to open up our heart to the Savior. I want to admit that I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Some of you husbands need to go and say, I scared you, honey. I know I trembled. And I let it go over the brink. And I cussed you out. And I called you some names that a believer should never have on their heart. Even they should never be on their lips. And some of you, the tears should flow. And there will be healing. There will be healing. This passage says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves you. He's a person. He feels for you. But when Dave works in lies or when you lie, when Dave works and gets angry and hurts someone and lets the sun go down upon his wrath, when Dave works and steals, when you steal, The Holy Spirit feels for you. He hurts for you. It hurts Him. We love the Holy Spirit. We love God the Son. We love God the Father so much that that becomes the ground of why we don't let anger destroy our marriages and why we don't let deception destroy our relationship. It's why we tell the truth. It's why we allow anger to turn into forgiveness and healing and grace and compassion and gentleness. And it's why hands that used to steal now want to give to those in need.